Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Ethan and me Bex. And in today's episode, we have an interview with comic book creator Dean Motter. Dean has had a long and illustrious career in comic books. He's most well known, I think, for writing the Mr. X series in the 80s, uh, which returned in the 2000s, Terminal City, Electropolis, and of course, the focus of our chat today, the prisoner follow-up Shattered Visage, which was released in 1988 to 1989 and has just been re-released by Titan Comics. His work has been nominated for and won multiple awards, and it has been hugely influential on other comic books over the last 30 years as well. Even his original series, Mr. X, essentially spawned sort of a mini sub-universe that has had contributions from some really well-known comic book creators working today, such as Peter Milligan, Neil Gaiman, uh, the Hernandez brothers, and a variety of some of the best comic book artists around. Uh, He hasn't always been involved in comic books. He had a career initially working in art and graphic design that moved heavily into uh, designing some award-winning album covers. And he's been involved in uh, book design and illustration as well as comic books. And his style, I think, can be described as something that encapsulates uh, German Expressionism, sort of the Bauhaus movement, his own uh, retro-futuristic style, as well as a focus on the dystopian future noir as well, focused on the world of of cities and uh, the relationship of uh, the citizens to uh, the cities of the future, which are now the cities of today. I think you can see the influence of that work in some films that came afterwards, such as uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil and Dark City as well. Hmm. Um, I think I was very heavily influenced by them. So we were really uh, lucky to have the chance to chat to Dean himself. Uh, We spoke a lot about the ideas he had upon the creation of the Shattered Visage comic back in the uh, late 80s. We spoke about uh, his love of The Prisoner as a TV show as well, and how it influenced other aspects of his work. But also it was really great to talk about his whole body of work over the last 40 years, which has encapsulated sort of all these different groundbreaking and influential projects which are landmarks in comic book history today. Yeah, we're very grateful to Dean for giving us his time and uh, here's the interview with him now. So we're delighted to be joined this time by comic book author and artist Dean Motter, the creator of, amongst other things, Mr. X, Terminal City, and of course the prisoner graphic novel Shattered Visage. Hello, Dean. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to meet you all. Were you a fan of the original show of The Prisoner when you made the graphic novel? Um, I was a fan when it, when it came out. Um, at the time, uh, uh, I was living in Canada. I was seeing a, uh, the Canadian broadcast of it, uh, which was a year prior to the, uh, the American broadcast. And uh, I, was a, I was already a big fan of uh, sort of espionage, adventure, television, like The Man from Uncle, and I Spy, and Mission Impossible, shows like that. But The Prisoner was a particular favorite of mine because it was so 
was along the lines of the Avengers, and it had a, an exotic quality, not being a North American product. But, and, um, you know, of course, it had echoes of James Bond and a lot of the other spy uh, milieu of the time. So uh, I, mean, I was quite an avid fan of all of that. But the prisoner held a particular interest to me just because it was so strange, uh, it was surreal, and uh, it always kept you guessing. So, so have you been surprised by uh, the long-lasting influence and impact of the show? Actually, I have. Um, while I was living in Canada uh, for several years, I was uh, working in Toronto. And uh, during that time, uh, they would run the the uh, series and during the summer uh, repeatedly, so once a year. And I was quite, uh, I always looked forward to it, but I, I never quite understood how broad an appeal it actually had for, uh, in terms of both longevity and, and uh, uh, its actual size of the audience that was, was following it. But at every comic book or science fiction convention I went to, it was always mentioned somehow or always had a presence. Um, and uh, uh, it, it gave me a new respect for the uh, curiosity and the, you know, the intelligence of its, uh, of its audience. So Shatter Visage came out 20 years after the broadcast of the original series. How did you get involved in the project? Well, I was in um, New York visiting um, uh, a number of clients and friends, and um, I had been talking to Richard Bruning, who was art director uh, of DC Comics at the time, and it was actually his idea to uh, to take on the prisoner. He was um, he and I he wanted me to do a project for for DC. Uh, I just come off doing Mister X for. Uh, Vortex Comics at the time, back in the original iteration of that that particular project, and uh, DC was having rather good success with some of its new upscale publications like uh, Return of the Dark Knight and Watchmen and Ronin and some others. And they were looking for more material to fit that format and that and it reached that particular audience. So the Direct market in the in the North America it was very big at that time, uh, as I think it was in England. And uh, uh, he was one that uh, actually said, "Well, why don't we do the prisoner?" I I, I wasn't sure why he said that, other than I think he knew that the rights were available. He'd been a fan during its original inception, and. Uh, uh, I said uh, I was aware of the previous attempts by Jack Kirby and Gil Kane to to make a comic book adaptation of it, and I'd seen the original art at one point, but uh, I never dreamed of of taking it on myself uh, until it was mentioned. So I I really had to think about it because I wasn't sure if I could live up to doing the further adventures of number six or not. And uh, so I went back to my hotel room, um, spent the evening thinking about it, 
and came up with the premise that, uh, that uh, it would be 20 years later and we would find out what happened to number six and the village and number two and uh, the world in general. So uh, I pitched this to DC uh, with Richard as editor and uh, I asked uh, who do you think should uh, illustrate it when they gave me the green light and they said, well, we would like you to illustrate it. They'd seen some of my illustration work before. So I was flattered to be brought in at that level that uh, I, I'd done a couple of small illustration projects for DC, but most of my uh, illustration work was in uh, in Canada, and most of that was in the music business, doing uh, record jackets and such. So... Uh, it was quite an honor, and I was quite flattered to be brought on at such a high level with such expectations. But, uh, but it was—it uh, uh, didn't take any uh, work at all to get to get it approved once uh, once I made my pitch to the editorial staff at DC. And was it always the plan to produce the series in? in four parts rather than a, a single graphic novel? Or would you have liked to continue it uh, beyond that into a, into a longer series? Well, originally I wanted to produce it in six parts so mm-hmm. that it became, uh, you know, so it had the allusion to number six. Uh, but they had a, a formula that was, that was working at uh, DC at the time of these four, four issue, um, what they call it prestige format bookshelf editions of comics and these were high quality uh printing on with square bound uh covers that would be brought to uh that would be collected at a later date but dark uh the return of the dark knight was a good example of of the what they were trying to uh repeat that was the success of that particular formula uh so i didn't really have any plans to um continue the series after that. I didn't know how to, uh, if I was going to take the series where I wanted to, I wasn't sure that after my resolution, I would have anything more to say about it. But, you know, over the years, I've kind of changed my mind here and there at different times that it would be more interesting to see now uh, what it become of that, you know, uh, particular storyline how it would have evolved further so uh but it's never really come up as a a realistic uh option while the uh, uh after the, the publication of the graphic novel uh it's only been recently that anybody's even talked about that as a, as a possibility so What's it like all these years later going back to Shatter Visage and going through original artwork and putting together this new edition? Well, um, we'd, we'd, uh, DC had kept the original film separations on file, so I knew those were available. So I really just had to go through and see if there's anything I wanted to change or update. And I thought, well, it really was a product of its own time. And, um, it didn't need. I, I still liked the work that I had done in it, and the writing that my, my collaborator and I had put together on it. 
that would be Mark Asquith. And it didn't seem uh, appropriate to try to update it because the whole premise of the book was that we were going to visit the village 20 years later and to try to bring it into the 21st century would have just strained the premise a little too far. So, uh, we, you know, I decided once Titan had agreed to publish this, uh, I wouldn't ask to have any real revisions done. I think I asked for one typographical change within the book and then said, no, print it as, as, as it is. There are a lot of, uh, things that are very specific to that particular time. Um, that wouldn't make sense entirely today, uh, but made sense at the at the time, with having to do with the premise of uh, GPS uh, systems and uh, digital watches and all things that were new technology at that time uh, were rather are rather ordinary today, and that was the uh, that was part of the conceit of the whole. 20 years later aspect of, uh, of what we were doing. So you knew you wanted to pick the story up 20 years after uh, the show ended. Right. And you knew the kind of story you wanted to tell. Um, can I ask how, how Mark got involved as a, as a co-writer in the project? Yeah. Um, Mark and I were, were friends and colleagues. He was managing the local comic book store in um, Toronto at the time. And uh, I knew that if I was going to take this on, that I was going to was going to be under some kind of scrutiny from prisoner aficionados, uh, and I felt I really needed some help on research. So I originally brought Mark on as a to help me with the research. This is before uh, commercially available VHS tapes were. Uh, uh, something I could refer to. So I had to do my best in, in uh, researching the project. Uh, and Mark was ready to jump in and help. And the more he brought uh, material to my attention, uh, he was coming up with uh, different aspects of how the story could be told. And it made sense uh, to change his role from research associate or research assistant or whatever it was going to be to co-write. He was a talented writer in his own, in his own right. And he was uh, also familiar with um, the espionage um, literary world. So we could bring in what was contemporary to the, uh, to the eighties of the, uh, of that particular genre, uh, so that it would it would seem current. It would seem like it was twenty years later, and how that that world in itself had changed. Uh, so once we started, there was no stopping us. We we would meet once a week, at least. Uh, we got in touch with the Six of One Society in Great Britain, uh, who were very generous and supplying us with reference not only to the show, but to Port Marion uh, itself, the location. Uh, so it was uh, 
had a lot of help in <laughs> visualizing this, and uh, Mark was certainly a big, big part of that. So, have you been to Port Marion yourself? I have, uh, but it was after the book had been published and came out. I was, um, I was gratified and and also a little startled how closely uh, I was able to get to it uh, in the book. Although in the book, it's it's a ghost town; it's fallen into ruin. But um, I had good good reference and good uh, people supplying me with the imagery. So, and once I was started to find out about Port Marion's actual history, uh, the, more it, the more I became fascinated with the, with the place itself. So it wasn't just a, a location setting anymore. It, was, it had its own personality and its own gravitas. And uh, I really enjoyed that. But, and when I did visit Port Marion, it was much smaller than I thought. But that was kind of the charm of <laughs> this this village, um, this storybook community. Um, so I, uh, I felt satisfied and, and proud of what we had been able to do with the, with the imagery. So following up on that, in a lot of your work, uh, the relationship between architecture and its occupants is often examined, uh, most notably in the, uh, in the wonderful Terminal City. Uh, what are your thoughts on the aesthetic of the village? In the prisoner. Well, I became uh, the more I got uh, became interested in uh, Port Marion's history and uh, how it was how it came about and how it was created. Uh, the more I was able to get uh, kind of specific in my imagination about it. So uh, it still has the fancy, the, the not the fancy, but the, the fanciful aspect to it of Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, uh, fairy tale place that was part of its charm that uh, its creator uh, uh, intended. Uh, but I, uh, I've always been a fan and a student of of architecture and the the idea. One of the things that appealed to me about the prisoner was the idea of this man whose identity that we didn't know trapped in this architectural uh, vision was so similar to my idea for Mr. X, which is basically almost the same uh, paradigm in its own way. We don't uh, we didn't know Mr. X was uh, the creator of the city or a victim of the city or if he was mad. And in a lot of ways, uh, the prisoner was asking the same questions in the television series of it, of its protagonist. And I thought uh, I'd, be, I'd be exploring some of the same themes uh, that I'd started with in this tracks, and I could now take them in a different direction, but... Uh, but hit some familiar territory. So uh, I was quite pleased that that kind of serendipity uh, wove itself uh, into the project. So was the character of number six an influence on, on any of your other work, notably on Mr. X? 
Um, I think subconsciously it was. I don't. I didn't set out when I did Mr. X to uh, mimic uh, the prison. I was more concerned with uh, mimicking Metropolis, uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis and Brave New World, and um, marrying that with the Maltese Falcon and um, film noir uh, conceits. But I think probably in the back of my mind, because I did enjoy the show so much when it's originally on, uh, I can't say that uh, that influence was wasn't there subconsciously. I think probably probably was. So as such a beloved show, uh, did you ever uh, worry about or or think about subconsciously uh, what the reaction of fans would be to Shattered Visage? Uh, I did. And in fact, I mean, I, I had endless conversations both with the editor and with uh, with Mark. Um, I said, you know, we are going to be um, we either going to be hailed uh, or crucified for this <laughs> project, one way or the other, probably both. Um, and I said, it's important that we not, in my mind, it's important that we not tamper with it conceptually. Uh, beyond uh, the fact that we were operating in a different medium and in a different time. I felt like if we started to answer a lot of the questions that the show asked, we'd be violating the, the premise of the show because I think the premise of the show is to remain enigmatic, to remain with lots of questions, <clears throat> to for the viewer or the reader to deal with themselves. So if we just discussed who the prisoner was, was he John Drake? Was he a different agent? Was he even in the spy business or did he just work in a, a secret organization? Was he a scientist? Was he a physicist? Was he a weapons maker? You know, we're never told in the show what he, what he really did what his reason for resigning was, where the village was, who ran it. And I felt if, if we begin to answer those questions, we will be uh, treading on some sacred ground and we'd be taking away part of the, the spine of the show. Uh, which is one of the, uh, which is one of what I thought was one of the failures of the uh, the AMC reboot <laughs> of the TV series she was back because it answered too many questions it had too many too much backstory which the viewer is supposed to provide as opposed to the the storyteller so we were quite concerned about that and I you know the more we worked on it we said we can allude to things we can pay homage or to a nod and a wink here and there, but let's not uh, let's not define it any more than uh, Patrick McGowan and Company had. So, when you're working on an, an existing property like The Prisoner, how do you put your own stamp on on the work that you do? How do you make it your own? Uh, I'm not sure. I know exactly how to answer that because. Uh, up until then, and even since, I've done very little work that has been uh, 
of my own creation. I've taken on some stories that are uh, particularly for DC and a couple for Marvel uh, with their with their characters, uh, Batman and Superman and Wolverine. Um, but I'm, but those have very some very narrow and uh, tight restrictions on what you can and can't do with the character or the premise. Uh, but with the prisoner, I felt I was like in familiar enough territory. And as long as I was respectful of the original concept, I could probably do just about any, anything I wanted. Uh, because what I, what I wanted to do, what I still like to do is what's in keeping with the spirit of the, the original show was keep it enigmatic, have a sense of humor, whether the show was a was an actual supposed to be an actual spy series or whether it was a pastiche of a spy series, it was always, you know, right on the borderline. We didn't really know if it was a parody or a send up or an homage or an actual attempt uh, to work within that genre. And I've always liked operating in that region of uh, storytelling uh, so I didn't I think uh, it came fairly easily putting my my stamp on it at least I felt it was and what was the reaction like from uh, Patrick McGowan and, and Leo McKern well at the time they were uh, they were given an approval as a courtesy by ITC I don't know that they had contractual control at that time. The property was considered by ITC to be pretty much a, a dormant or even dead property. So this is like found uh, opportunity for them to exploit the properties more. So I think they asked Magoon and McKern for uh, approval on their likenesses uh, as a courtesy more than as a contractual matter. Uh, so I did, uh, I created some character sketches and studies uh, and sent them along. And the only word I got back from them was that they, they'd approved their likenesses. And I knew that Magoon had had an issue with the, the likeness question when he eventually saw the, uh, the first two attempts that, uh, that Jack Kirby and Gil Kane had done. Um, but I don't think that was, it wasn't really an issue. I don't think they took it very, they gave it very much thought until after the book was finished and they saw the finished product. Uh, and at that point I got reports back from, uh, ITC and other sources of what their, what their reactions were. Uh, like I say, we didn't get any input, uh, from the Boone Arm Return, and I don't think the material was submitted to them while it was a work in progress. I think they only saw the work, um, I'm 99% sure they only saw the work after it had been published. And at that point, um, I was told by uh, both uh, my my contacts at ITC, as well as some other sources, that uh, Magoon had said he didn't hate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which was, I was also told that was high praise coming from him <laughs> uh, at the time. 
and I was told that um, later on, I think Mark Asquith had dinner with Leo McCarran at one point and said um, when it came up in conversation that um, McCarran had enjoyed uh, the work because he had never been a comic book villain before. <laughs> and uh, it required no effort on his part. <laughs> to do. So he was, uh, they were both in their own uh, wry way, I think, uh, uh, satisfied with, with the efforts that we made. I think it was, it was obvious that we were trying to be as respectful and as, uh, and, and as true to their, to what, to their work uh, as uh, as possible as I was able to do. Uh, so I think I, I, I always appreciated, especially McGowan's remark. I, um, it's not exactly a blurb for the back cover, <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's as close as I was going to get, and uh, I I take it where I can get it. So. It's really not only held up over time, but it's a it's a wonderful addition to the uh, to the prisoner mythology. Well, thank you. Um, I, I was surprised when I when I did go back and reread it and everything that it that it held up, um, given how long ago I had done it and uh, how much ground I've covered in since then as a writer and as an illustrator. Uh, I'm still very happy with the uh, with the artwork. And uh, I think her writing stands up. Um, and again, I was lucky to have a collaborator that had the same passions that I did uh, and came at it with the same kind of enthusiasm. So, Were you always a fan of comics growing up? Uh, yeah. In fact, I, I would say that's one of the uh, ways I learned to draw was fairly early on my parents, particularly my mother, did not discourage me from uh, reading and collecting comics. So I, I devoured them at a, at a fairly rapid clip, and I uh, collected them. And uh, at any opportunity I had to mimic, or later on in my uh, my life during college, and then to try to bring that into my my professional training home. I, I always referred back to it. And it, uh, it was a good training ground. That's <laughs> what it was. So uh, who were your biggest influences from the world of comics or perhaps the world of art and design as well? Well, that's a good question. I mean, that's, there'd be a long list, but my main influences in comics at the time uh, that I did The Prisoner was uh, Mobius, Steranko, uh, Neil Adams, uh, uh, Miguel Manara, some of the European uh, illustrators who I'd come to know through uh, Metal Long and uh, Heavy Metal magazines and other uh, foreign foreign publications. Uh, and in design, there's a host of designers uh, uh, that I often refer to them as architects. So, the, you know, the Bauhaus movement was a big uh, influence of mine during the, my Mr. X years and subsequently. But um, uh, it'd be hard to cite all the different mm-hmm. designers that, that influenced uh, or inspired my work. But um, 
but uh, I still I now that now that we have the internet and access to a lot of this work, you know, it's hard to collect uh, reference material for a lot of these more obscure uh, artistic uh, visionaries uh, than it is now. And uh, uh, I have a, a library that's far too big for the, the house that I live in <laughs> <laughs> of, of reference material. Uh, one of the biggest influences that came later was uh, going back and looking at the worlds of the future as envisioned in the past. So it's, uh, and this came out of Terminal, Terminal City and Mr. X both uh, came out of that aesthetic of retro futures. And, and um, to a degree, there's an element of that in the, in the Prisoner, in the TV show. It's not so present in the graphic novel, but uh, there's enough science fiction in the show uh, to uh, satisfy that particular vein of interest for me. And what were the key influences for you in, in developing your uh, retro-futuristic style? Well, um, besides, as I said, the uh, films like Metropolis and Brave New World, uh, uh, my, I think the biggest was the referring back to the old uh, pulp magazines of the 30s and the 40s uh, of what uh, popular in science, popular mechanics, uh, magazines that are purported to be, you know, visions of the future of magnetic trains and uh, airborne cars and uh, household robots and things like that. Uh, some of those covers are so colorful and so well realized that I say this material can't just sit idle and be quaint. Uh, it has something to say to us about today. Uh, their, you know, their visions of what the city of tomorrow might look like, uh, so different from what it ended up looking like when the future actually arrived at the turn of the century. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't quite what we were expecting or wasn't quite what we were told uh, to expect, and I, I think there was a, a fascinating uh, lesson or set of lessons to be learned there, and um, that's why I've continued to explore that even to this day in the modern version of Mr. X is all uh, very much concerned with uh, how uh, civilization and technology developed uh, you know, from the 20s to the 50s and how it was projected into into the 21st century. So you've developed these themes quite a lot from uh, Mr. X to Terminal City mm. to Electropolis. Uh, would you ever consider doing some kind of crossover in these in these three worlds? Oh, I have. I have a, uh, a Tri-City murder mystery that takes place in those three cities. Uh, in fact, there's a bit of a crossover in uh, in uh, Electropolis because Mr. X makes an appearance in Electropolis, as does the Human Fly and his assistant uh, from Terminal City. Um, 
but I wanted to, uh, I've long wanted to do and have a uh, a springboard uh, ready to uh, take up some more of my time (laughs) as soon as I'm able uh, uh, to marry these, uh, these three cities into their, into the, uh, into my Uwe of this of this city of t- this world of tomorrow's vision back then um, the uh, uh, one of the founding members of the Farsan theater comedy group who wrote my introduction to uh, to terminal city uh, Peter Bergman uh, had a great quote about uh, the city of the future about my vision you know that it, it was the, it was the vision of the 90s from the uh, point of view of the 20s, but stopped somewhere dead in the 50s. <laughs> and uh, that, was, uh, that was as good a summary as I, I could get from, uh, or I could make uh, about that particular realm of fantasy world. So uh, Mr. X remains a landmark in, in comic book history. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how the idea for Mr. X came about and actually also why you decided to return to Mr. X after, um, after a spell as well. Uh, well, Mr. X came about as a, uh, a bit of serendipity as well. Uh, I was doing a, an airbrush painting, uh, and I, I hadn't named the character and it was basically, Mr. X sitting in front of a window with a skyscraper behind it. And it was just a, a study in style and trying to get my chops together as an airbrush artist. Uh, but everybody that saw that uh, had, a, had a reaction to it. They wanted to know who the character was, what the mysterious parcel at his feet was, uh, what the whole thing meant. And the more I thought about it, the more uh, it, the, the idea came up of doing something that was, uh, like I say, a mixture of uh, of Maltese Falcon and, uh, and uh, uh, kind of film noir stuff with the with the film Metropolis. So what if uh, uh, what if Raymond Chandler's character, what if Philip Marlowe had been operating? Uh, in Metropolis, you know, what would a detective in that town look like? Uh, and the, that led to the uh, the flourishing of this this whole idea, the flowering, uh, and the. But it became apparent that if I made him a detective, I'd be just turning over new ground, and it wouldn't really have much to do with uh, the city itself. The city itself would just be a back backdrop and I didn't want that I wanted to do more with it uh, so making him the probable architect of the city became an interesting uh, place to operate from and it just developed from there I did a lot of work with uh, the original artist on Mr. X was uh, was going to be uh, an illustrator who I shared a studio with uh, Paul Ravage and he was a big he had the same kind of influences both as an illustrator and as a comic book fan as I did and um, we collaborated for quite a quite a long time he ended up doing several covers and posters for the series 
uh, but he helped me flesh out the uh, the vision of it. And uh, you know, when it went on through the '80s, and I took it as far as I could go with it, or as far as I felt I could go with it at the time. Um, and I finally left, and the series ceased publication in color, and it was handed over to a different creative team who sort of started it anew. Uh, but then several years later, uh, about 2003, I think, uh, long after it had been dormant for several years, Dark Horse approached me to do a short Mr. X story for one of their anthologies that, was, that, all, that had to do with film noir. So it was called Noir, and it was basically uh, it was about the time Sin City, Frank Miller's Sin City was uh, running particularly high. Uh, so, so I did an eight-page story, and uh, it got great reaction. Uh, and the editors at Dark Horse liked it enough that they said, uh, would you be interested in rebooting uh, the series for contemporary audience in the 21st century? And I said, of course. And my both my skills as a writer and, and as a, an illustrator had improved quite a lot, in my mind anyway. And the uh, technology that was now available meant that I could do the book solo. It was conceivable I could write, draw, color, letter, uh, and do the entire thing myself. I wouldn't have to you know, be forced to rely on collaborators. Uh, although I do enjoy that process. Uh, so I was able to return to it with kind of a fresh fresh eye and a, a new start. And um, it's, been a, it's been a good ride. I'm working on uh, the fourth miniseries for Mr. X right now. Uh, first three plus a whole bunch of other uh, uh, serials uh, were collected a uh, year before last in uh, uh, an anthology called The Modern Age. And uh, that, that collects the entire 21st century uh, run of, uh, of Mr. X. And uh, I'm quite proud of that as well. So. so from your own back catalogue of work, do you have a particular favourite piece of work or character? Uh, I think my favourite work out of out of all, all the material I've done, um, is still Terminal City because it's it's a very self-contained uh, series. It's actually, two two mini series that uh, go together, and they were collected into a nice, big, handsome volume recently. Uh, but it looks great, largely due to the um, illustration efforts of Michael Lark and the colors by. Rick Taylor, but I like to think that my art direction uh, had a lot to do with that as well. It has a very uh, little Nemo uh, feel to it. Uh, it's nice and open, and it's it feels like a noir story, but it's very colorful. Um, so I think, and it's probably my best writing uh, up to that point. But like I say, so self-contained, you can read, read it from start to finish, and 
there's a satisfaction with the uh, with its conclusion, or at least in my mind there is. I'm satisfied with. Uh, not to say I won't go back to it, but uh, but it uh, it stands out to me as, as one of the things I'm proudest of. And so, could we ask uh, who are your favorite uh, comic book creators working today? Uh, well, it's a different world. And creators operate with a completely different uh, set of restrictions as well as freedoms today. So it's harder to to see the, uh, I mean, the level of uh, of accomplishment and skill is much more apparent today. But the ones that appeal to me the most, uh, working a big fan of Chris Ware's work. Uh, uh, I still, uh, still go back to uh, Steranko and Eisner and Kirby and Alex Toth and people like that for my own personal influences. But the um, the people I enjoyed of, of late, Darwin Cook was another uh, one in the new uh, sort of the new generation of storytellers. Uh, Tess Fowler, uh, many of the artists and Shelley Bond's uh, Black Crown imprint. Uh, so many new ones that are that are just head and shoulders above uh, my contemporaries at the time. Uh, uh, and I think a lot of that is due not just to technology, but to to the ground that we were able to cover and the frontiers that we were able to cut through uh, during our time. People like Frank Miller and Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore and Matt Wagner and Mike Mignola um, had made it, you know, possible for auteurs to uh, to exist commercially and not just be uh, sidelined as um, cult figures. So uh, I'd be, I'd have to actually sit down with the catalog <laughs> and look at people working today but there are so many yeah. and uh, uh, it's always exciting to me to get into a comic book shop where I can still browse through what's on the racks and spend some time acquainting myself with some of the new talents So uh, to finish I'd like to uh, return once more to uh, The Prisoner. So we've just sure. um, obviously had the 50th anniversary of the show i just kind of wanted to know what what your thoughts were on on what the message of the prisoner and and characters like number six uh would be in in today's world if you were to continue that story yourself and what you thought would be uh the most relevant ideas and concepts that would that would echo in the modern world well i think the, the most powerful and obvious one to me is the idea of surveillance uh and that's uh in the, in the show the surveillance was everything from the the hidden tv cameras in the statuary of the village and the constant you know the constant viewing of number six's uh efforts you know inside the green dome by whatever forces there were in there in number two's direction uh, Surveillance today is taken on a much more menacing and ubiquitous uh, nature. 
than it had even in that show. But that show was was prescient of what was what was to what was to become. So now there's a surveillance camera on every corner of any urban street. Uh, there's uh, there's things like in North America, there's the Patriot Act, where they're able to listen, and who knows who's able to listen, and what secret agencies have uh, access to our conversations and our most secret or more, more, most uh, private matters uh, and how dangerous that has become uh, to our value systems. So uh, that was probably the most, to me, that was the most important uh, thing was about have to do with surveillance, but also about the autonomy of these intelligence organizations and how much power they have and how much we're aware of or, or allowed to be aware of uh, and how how deeply rooted they they can be, probably are, possibly are uh, embedded in our daily lives. So I think uh, espionage aside, I think for the common man, for the everyman, uh, these are questions that you know come right down to our phone calls and our our internet connections and so on. So with that, we'd like to uh, thank you very much, Dean, for joining us and telling us all about your work, not only on uh, Shattered Visage, but also uh, your long and illustrious career in comic books. Well, thank you so much for your interest and your support, and uh, I hope to continue to uh, provide some uh, fodder for your curiosity in the, in the years to come. But I very much appreciate your uh, your attention to the uh, to my work. I never dreamed that this would uh, have this kind of legs after the collection originally came out. Uh, uh, you know, I was ha- happy to be part of that legacy, but uh, you know, for to have made it this far and still and be regarded as part of the um, the prisoner canon by anybody uh, who followed the show is, uh, is flattering and gratifying. Thank you. Thank you very much, and be seeing you. Be seeing you, too. So we'd like to thank Dean once again for joining us and giving us his time to talk to us about his huge body of work and uh, especially giving us so much insight into Prisoner Shattered Visage, which he co-wrote with Mark Asquith, and which is, uh, I think, a wonderful addition to the uh, to the Prisoner legacy as well, in addition to being uh, a wonderful comic book in itself. Um, a lot of Dean's most famous work has been reprinted relatively uh, recently in wonderful new editions. The two that I'd really like to highlight, I think, are the collected editions that uh, reprint the original and uh, follow-up Mr. X series. And in particular, um, I think he mentioned it in the interview as well, the deluxe hardback version of Terminal City, which collects both uh, miniseries in one of those oversized library editions uh, released by Dark Horse. It's a fantastic story uh, in itself. Great artwork by uh, Michael Lark. I think it really encapsulates sort of a lot of themes that are apparent throughout Dean's work. And what I love about this edition is 
it really is one of those books that has really deserved the release in a large format. It's beautifully put together um, and a great celebration of that story as well. And of course, Titan put out this new release of Shattered Visage earlier this year, which reprints all four parts of the story together with some extra bonus material, uh, which is a, a really wonderful part of the prisoner verse for fans and and also a, a great piece of late 80s comic art i think and if you have been subscribing to the tallyho podcast you will know that we've covered quite a few comic books uh, related to the prisoner itself and there are episodes in our archive which cover not only Shattered Visage, which came out a couple of weeks ago, where we spoke to uh, Titans editor David Leach, but we've also got episodes on uh, the Peter Milligan, Colin Lorimer series, The Uncertainty Machine, which was the new take on The Prisoner that came out in 2018, and also um, a discussion again with David Leach about the original art edition of the two interpretations of the opening episode of the show, Arrival, that were done by Jack Kirby and Gil Kane and Steve Englehart. Yeah, so if you want to listen to any of those episodes or indeed any of our other podcast streams, uh, you can find us on iTunes or on various podcast apps. Everything is under our main feed, Time for Cakes and Ale, including all of our Tally Ho episodes about the world of the prisoner and our Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes about Twin Peaks. And if you want to get hold of us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA or in our Facebook page, Time for Cakes Now. And you can always visit our website, timeforcakesnail.com, to listen to our latest episodes and drop us a comment to let us know what you think about the podcast. Yes, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us. But that's it for now from the Tally Ho podcast. Be seeing you! you.